Nehemiah 13. So it's in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to read through the whole chapter before drawing out a few a few points. Here we go. So chapter 13, starting from verse 1. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the the, the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? And I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O oh my God. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its servants. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. 
Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. Remember them... Oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, oh my God. There we go, the final chapter in the book of Nehemiah. We've seen remarkable progress before now. The people of God have rebuilt a ruined wall. They've taken all the rubble and remade the wall around Jerusalem. It can be lived in again. Uh, we've seen from thereafter that the people then consecrate themselves again to God. They remembered who their God was. And he was the one they're wanting to follow. So Jerusalem became repopulated with people who loved and honored God. And we've seen that all the way through the book. And more latterly, we've seen also how they gathered again. Uh, They gathered so many times to hear the word of God, to celebrate the festivals and feasts. And in chapter 12, we saw they gathered again to to dedicate the walls, to give thanks. um, That this is the city of God. It's got an amazing call. Now we get to chapter 13, and it all seems to be one big dose of realism. We would like there to be a sunset ending, but it's sad, emotional, it's, it's incomplete. And what we find are backsliding believers, an angry old guy called Nehemiah, and a God who would appear to be absent. And we might think, well, what are we to make of this? It would appear that they have gone entirely back to square one. They were called to be the people of God, Jerusalem, the, the city of God, the holy city. Upon us, the church, we have a call to be a holy people. The city of God, if you like, not called to exclude foreigners, so to speak, but called to be pure, called to be a worthy representative of Christ, therefore able to welcome people in from all nations, 
to say, this, this is God. But this wasn't God's people drawing people to worship their king. This was God's people just getting compromised and mixed up and messed up. So sad, emotional, incomplete. And again, we see these backsliding believers, an angry old guy and an absent God. What are we to make of this? We might ask ourselves. Let's look first at the backsliding believers. They have encountered uh, tremendous high points. Uh, in chapter 8, we'd seen by then that the walls were completed. They'd worked hard and the city was again habitable. And they gather to listen to the word of God and to worship God in chapter 8. In chapter 9, we saw that after that feasting and festivities, they were still aware, we need to repent, we need to turn away, we need to get right with God. And so chapter 9 was just entirely dedicated to the people getting right and repenting. And then in chapter 10, um, they make this binding agreement. And they bind themselves to keep, in particular, uh, all the areas all the where they previously gone against God. And God previously had sent them into exile. Um, but they kind of reach a new binding agreement. We, we, we know we stuffed up in that before, but now we're, we're going to live your way, God. And we know that we stuffed up in that way before, but now we're going to live your way. That's the conviction they'd arrived at in chapter 10. But now we hit a new low point. Firstly, Tobiah is back. Uh, the Really, he's been a thorn in their side all the way through, trying to dissuade them from rebuilding the, the wall and the city in the first place. Um, he, at no stage has he really demonstrated any desire to honor God and, and build up and encourage Jerusalem. But now he's inside Jerusalem. Not only is he allowed inside Jerusalem, but he's allowed inside the temple. And space is made for him, a storeroom the size of a small warehouse, is allowed for him. What's going on? It's a new low point. And the people have slid back on every commitment they made to giving to God, taking care of the temple, providing for the priests, keeping the Sabbath sacred, honoring home life and marriage, all those agreements they had come to. Now the temple is neglected. The Levites have gone back to the country um, to try and eke out a living there because they're not being provided for uh, in Jerusalem. There's nothing special about the Sabbath and there are many uh, mixed marriages. That means that the next generation is growing up more familiar with foreign language, foreign culture and foreign gods. And so really a single generation's compromise could undo the work of many generations. All that progress... All that advance, but apparently just slipping back. It could be by this stage in their history, they had already heard Malachi prophesying to them, warning them. Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament, bringing warnings, um, bringing kind of encouragement. Come back to God. Honor the wife of your youth. Honor marriage. Uh, Give and... uh, and give attention to the temple again. Malachi, perhaps at this time, had already brought that message, but the people have not yet responded. What are we to make of all of this? Well, 
Interestingly, just as was mentioned by a gentleman from the balcony, we are called to press on. The Christian life is not one long mountaintop moment. All those high points, all those festivities, all those kind of red letter days, all those special times when, oh, do you remember when Ezra stood up and he, he spoke from the word of God and we gathered for the whole day and we worshipped and we gave thanks to him. Do you remember that? Do you, do you remember how we repented? Do you remember then how we reached that new binding agreement? Do you remember that we, we moved in? We moved into Jerusalem and we, we'd already rebuilt the walls and and, and there was that special time when people were really giving themselves in a new way. It was wonderful. But the whole of the Christian life is not spent in kind of one smooth uh, transfer of, of mountaintop moments. It's all wonderful. It's all effortless. We can kind of see this glorious panorama and kind of know tremendous intimacy uh, with God. There are mountaintop moments in the Christian life, but they're not forever. Um, Elijah went to a mountaintop and he challenged the prophets of Baal. And on that mountain, he brought a sacrifice to God. And God sent fire on Elijah's sacrifice, showing his favor. It was an awesome occasion. What happened later is Elijah went down the mountain and later was just running for his life. And sat down under a broom tree and wanted to give up all together. Sometimes after the mountaintop moment, we can actually be vulnerable to an emotional low uh, that Elijah experienced there. Jesus was himself baptized. This wonderful high point in his earthly life, um, when he was immersed in water or saturated in water one way or another in the river, hears the voice of Almighty God saying, this is my son, with him I'm well pleased. And the Spirit comes down upon him like a dove. What happens next? The Holy Spirit leads him into the desert for 40 days to tempt him. It's not all bliss. It's not all ease. It's not all wonderfully straightforward. Sometimes it's just ordinary. And we need to be aware that we need to press on in the midst of ordinary life. In the midst of ordinary and sometimes frustrating circumstances that might hit you on a Tuesday or Wednesday, but oh, thank goodness for Sunday. Well, there's reality, isn't there? Life is not spent on top of a mountain in just effortless bliss. And we need to be those, therefore, who, who press on. That, yeah, we're, gonna, we're believing for other occasions when God visits in, in particular power, um, but we're not just passively waiting until that moment, kind of kicking our heels in the meantime. So in the book of Philippians, Paul writes there to bring that kind of positive uh, challenge. He, he says of himself in Philippians 3 and verse 12, Not that I've already obtained all this, I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He goes on. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too 
God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. On the mountaintop, we can kind of have fresh revelation and insight and really want to give our lives to God. Everything seems really abundantly clear. We get down into the valley of ordinary life and we can kind of somehow lose or leak that which we've already attained. We've already come through on any number of issues or convictions and yet it can kind of just leak away from us. We need to press on in faith. I believe that is the message that the England football team most need to hear. Forget what is past. Press on towards the goal. Oh, we're back to square one again. Would you believe it? Well, quite frankly, yes. But it's still disappointing. <laughs> Mountaintop moments, maybe. 1966. Um, <laughs> moments of promise. Moments of hope. Moments of, ah, if only. And that's kind of the point we hit at Nehemiah 13. What's, what's going on here? Let's be those who press on. Because we're, we're, none of us are immune from temptation. Uh, to the Corinthians, Paul, write, Paul, Paul writes, well, just take care. If you think you're standing firm, take care that you don't slip. In other words, sometimes our most vulnerable moments are those when we think we're standing strong, when we think we're doing well. And actually then it's the moment we trip because we're not pressing on. We're not standing guard. We're not, we're kind of aware I'm doing so well at the moment. I've really encountered this great, be it experience or success or I've dedicating myself to God, whatever it might be, uh, we start to get impressed with ourselves and we, we forget that actually sin stays tempting. Satan stays persistent. And we've always got a tendency to slip back and lose our footing. We're never as strong as we think we are. So press on. Stand firm. And also... This is not just about personal decisions. This is not just, oh yes, I must remember that in order for my life to stay on track with the plans that God has for me, I I need to guard my heart from uh, my sin. There's The whole community is in view here. The big picture is, this is not just a few individuals who have backslidden this is not just personal compromise all those personal decisions that were happening here in chapter 11 or that are represented here be it in terms of money be it in terms of the sabbath be it in terms of marriage just personal decisions to compromise now that nehemiah is not around or whatever it might be a part of a bigger picture the whole nation was in decline And for us, uh, looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there is a a sober reminder of the greater importance of dealing with sin in any form. The context in Corinth is they've been doing so well. Paul has gone there. It was not the easiest of places to go and the easiest of places to be. But he stays there for a long time and a church gets established. 
Um, people get saved, but he hears a report and writes back. What is going on? He says at the beginning of chapter 5, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur amongst pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you're proud? They're kind of impressed with themselves for what they can handle. Look at, look at how we are. Look at how inclusive we are. Look what we can, we can deal with. We can, we can accommodate this. It's all grace, you know. Uh, or later on in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Yeast there is used um, to describe what sin is like. Sin, like yeast in a dough, spreads and affects the whole batch. It doesn't just stay isolated in one area. Who knows what the order of events was here in Nehemiah, but we think, well, it's just Tobiah. It's just one room in the temple. I'm sure we can make a bit of space for him. But it doesn't stay there. The the, the problem never just stayed Tobiah. The whole of their national religious life is polluted by attitudes that didn't get dealt with. And the same can be true in any church, in any body of people. Where necessary, deal with sin in your own life for your sake, but also deal with it for the sake of God's church. If I harbor sin of any sort... It will spread to you. That's really quite sobering. And I think the same is true. If you are a member of this church, if you are indeed a member of another church, and you are prepared to harbor sin, you will pollute other people. You will defile other people. If you don't forgive, and the Bible describes how a root of bitterness can come up that defiles many. It's not just me. It's not just something that I can keep tucked away to myself in one corner of my life, in one room of my house. No, sin is yeast that wants to bring a nation into decline. It wants to bring a people where, where nothing really matters. It's like, it's like a boat. Boats are designed to be in water and to sail and to navigate in water uh, if it's ocean going to, to the four corners of the ocean, a boat goes. A boat in water is good. Church in the world is good. That's where we're called to be. We are called to go to the four corners of the world and be a blessing, demonstrate and declare how good our God is and his gospel. That we might welcome, have the privilege of introducing more people to his wonderful love. But if water gets into the boat in any great measure, there's a really, really big problem. And that's what we see here. If water stays in the boat, it quickly needs, well, it needs pumping out. It needs bailing out. It's just yucky bilge. That is sin. Remember, the walls had been rebuilt. Now they've re-established life in Jerusalem. After many years, things were very, very comfortable. 
the rubble was gone. Praise God the rubble was gone. But actually, now that the rubble was gone, there wasn't the same reminder hanging about the place. Remember what we did. Remember how we turned away from God so completely in every area of the covenants. And remember how God sent us into exile. Remember how siege works were put up against this wall and it was destroyed and we became a captive people. Do you remember that? Well, not so much now because the rubble is no longer around to remind me. And sometimes we can get comfortable and forget what we've already attained, as it were. We kind of forget where we've already been. We forget the battles that we've already won through on. And, oh, just slip back. So we see backsliding believers. Let's just allow that to remind us. We want to press on. You know, in season or out of season. Not just waiting for a mountaintop moment. Not just waiting for a trip to New Day. Which I pray will be a glorious mountaintop moment for all young people who go there. But don't soft pedal until then. Yeah, God will sort me out then, so I can just, I can just accommodate sin or bad attitudes in the meantime, because I know God will bail me out then. Well, don't you believe it? God is not, you know, we, we can't twist God's arm and say, on such and such a week, Lord, you must meet with me so powerfully that you deal with all this mess that I'm not actually paying attention to. You do it, Lord. I'll turn up, you do it. No. Deal with it now and believe for um, time with God. That will be a great blessing. So we see backsliding believers. We also meet an angry old guy. Now, perhaps by this point, his reaction doesn't quite look as bad as it might have done on first reading. Um, I think in verse 8, when he is described as greatly displeased, that is English understatement for really hacked off. Um, as we can see from some of the things that he sets about. Some would estimate that he has actually been away for 20 years. He was governor of Jerusalem for about 12, in which time the wall was rebuilt and the city was re-established. He then had to return uh, to King Artaxerxes in Susa, in Babylon. Um, but later on, he requested to come back. And it is perhaps, though we don't know for certain, around 20 years. A, a long time has elapsed. He comes back into the city. And like I say, in every area where there had been progress, there has been backsliding. You could forgive him for asking the question, have they forgotten everything? Have they given, given it all up? Have they turned away from everything? And then even to find that his arch enemy is hobnobbing with the high priest in the house of God. I think, honestly, I think for him, heading back to Jerusalem was a feeling of being in a big boat with lots of people. The boat is leaking fast, but he is the only one to have noticed. Everyone else is happy out on their voyage. The sun's shining. The sea is calm. The boat is leaking, and they're not paying attention. Well, he is. And actually, that's a moment not for prize-winning niceness. Nehemiah is not, at this point, evidently, Mr. Nice Guy. He demonstrates the same passion and prayerfulness. He is as proactive as ever he was before. He is on a mission. He doesn't want the whole thing just to go down under the water. And so, maybe, don't copy Nehemiah's actions. 
If you think someone is backsliding, don't beat them or pull out their hair. If your brother or sister really hacks you off, then be passionate, be prayerful, be proactive like Nehemiah. But I don't think this is, this is here in this scripture for him to be kind of like a copycat role model. I think this is his memoirs, remember. This is his heart on his sleeve. And he's saying, this hurt me so much, but yet it was so important that something should be done that I was very, very zealous. There is some anger and anxiety in the mix. Now let's, let's, hopefully there are things that we care about enough that we would be passionate and as prayerful and as proactive. Sometimes that can even cause for bringing up a, a loving rebuke. Actually, what do you think you're playing at? It can sometimes be the most helpful thing that we can hear if it needs to kind of wake us up from some apathy that's set in. That can be very, very loving and important. But So let's not judge him for caring so much that he was prepared to respond in the way that he did. What are we to make of this? How does this apply? We're called to faithfulness. Nehemiah saw his life's work in ruins. Everything that he'd given himself for passionately had been or appeared to have been forgotten. And right now, you may be, you may be able to identify it with Nehemiah. Sometimes in the workplace. Sometimes in the civil service. Oh, things have gone round again. I've been giving myself, giving myself, giving myself to something. And, oh, we're just going to change it now. We're doing something completely different. And it's just been forgotten. I gave my life to that. More than the nine to five. Sometimes it was seven to ten or whatever. And, and now forgotten. Sometimes in family life, just diligently giving myself or giving yourself to, to the unseen but important work of raising a family. And has it all been forgotten? Look again at Nehemiah's prayer. Well, he's, there's a, he prays four times in this passage. The first one in verse uh, 14. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. On first reading, can appear incredibly arrogant. Remember me for what I've done. It's not that kind of prayer. This is, it might be, O oh God, that nobody else remembers. It might be, O oh God. In fact, it looks likely that whatever is done in faith will not be a permanent solution. Father, remember me for what I have so faithfully done for your service. He's entrusting himself to God. He's not throwing in the towel. He's not giving in to despair. He sees that his work lies in ruins and now he stoops down and as like with worn out tools, seeks to build it up again. He's an old man. Or he's certainly maybe 20 years older than he was when he was there. He's certainly nearing 
he's nearer the end of his life than the beginning. I'm pretty sure we can say that. And he sees his life's work in ruins. What does he do? He, he comes again. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm going re- I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to give myself again to this Lord. But I know in all likelihood, whatever I achieve right now, it will just be temporary. It's not going to last forever. Oh God, I entrust myself therefore to you. Would you remember me in this? He's a faithful guy. And therefore, going back to uh, 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, we need to see and receive the encouragement there. Uh, near the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, it appears to be entirely in vain. What on earth are you talking about? The people backslid. They were bound to do the same again. But no, his labor in the Lord was not in vain. He knew who his master was. He knew who his Lord was. The king of heaven. The God who's working the whole story through. And he is faithful And so on that last and great day, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servants. With what you had, you honored me. With what you were entrusted with, you worked diligently. And so now I am, I'm honoring, I'm blessing, I'm rewarding you. I have not forgotten. Remember from a couple of weeks ago when Tom was preaching on, uh, the, the parable that Jesus shares of the sheep and the goats. And on that final day when he separates out the sheep and the goats, he says to the sheep, uh, the righteous ones, you know, well done. Well, they say, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? Uh, when did we see you cold and give you something to wear? To them, they hadn't remembered. They hadn't even, they couldn't recall actually what they'd done. But it's Jesus who says, ah, but I've, I've remembered, I've seen. Whenever you did something like this to, the one, of the, to one of the least of the, these, you were doing it to me. And so whenever you do something in this life, be it in the arena of employment and work, be it in family life, be it in church commitment, I think nothing is missed by God. Nothing is forgotten by him. And he's looking in us for faithfulness. So often I think we want to be successful. We want to be able to demonstrate that we've been a success. So that one way or another, the world would say to us, well done, you've done a really good job. And so we can kind of play to that audience. See see what I'm like. See what I have achieved. See what I have had to put up with. See what I've done so diligently and faithfully. Oh, like, like, like. Well done. Tick. Whatever. I think we're encouraged to believe God. We're encouraged that He rewards faithfulness. And it matters more, dare I say, than actually being successful. Nehemiah did not know what effect his life's work would have at all. But it registered with God. 
I think that also demonstrates we are not called, we are called to be faithful, we are not called to be the hero of our own story. We want to get to our very last days and say, look at what I have done. Would you just check me out? My medals, my achievements, and my awards. I even managed to get Mr. Nice Guy. Oh yes. We, we kind of want that somehow. But sometimes God's people are called, and when they get to the very last day, they think, well, what did I achieve? And we need to be aware of heaven's perspective and what our God says. Not just play to the world. Please tell me I'm a success. Please tell me well done. No, we're, we're living for God. He's our master. He's the one whose opinion counts. And he holds it all. He doesn't forget a single thing. But what about God? Because in this passage, it would appear that he is more or less absent. It's an unsatisfactory ending. The nation has declined. Yes, well, rescued for now, perhaps. There's some recovery has taken place. Um, because Nehemiah went on the rampage. Maybe for now, things are okay. But, well, surely Nehemiah's actions won't, won't be permanent. Perhaps Nehemiah will leave a bit of a legacy behind, but the job's not done. There's unfinished business that no mere mortal could fulfill. No law, no legislation can bring about genuine, permanent, lifelong change in this community. So from this standpoint, the future looks bleak and God looks a little bit absent. What do we learn from this? Well, again, we are not called to be the hero of the story. We need more than just a role model. We need a saviour. Chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah is possibly, and I would stress the word possibly because I'm not sure entirely, it is possibly the last chapter of the Old Testament, historically, if Malachi's prophecy came in those intervening years when Nehemiah went back to Susa. If that's the case, or one way or another, this is drawing towards the close of the Old Testament. A few hundred years would then elapse when no scripture was written, and this is paving the way for another new beginning. Nehemiah and all God's people in Jerusalem at that time could never do it. They could never complete it. They could never finish it off. They could never achieve permanent change. So this chapter points us on. And it points us on to another new beginning. Hundreds of years later, somebody else would come. The Son of God would come to Jerusalem. God himself would observe. My life's work lies in ruins. And so I am going to stoop down. I'm going down. And I'm going to build it up. I'm going to do something. He would return to Jerusalem. Jesus would discover religious hypocrisy and compromise amongst God's people. John chapter 2 uh, records how he returns to the temple and just sees that rather than being a house of prayer for all nations, my father's house, it's just become a den of robbers. It's just about doing trade and making money. And the disciples would, would recount later, wow, zeal for your house will consume me. 
That's what the Old Testament says. That's what Jesus demonstrated. He got into that temple and he won no award for Mr. Nice Guy. He turned over the tables. He kicked out the money changers. He did some crazy business. Because he was passionate about something. And when he visited Jerusalem for the last time, he himself would resemble a total failure. A revolutionary leader in utter weakness, deserted by all his followers, being crucified on trumped-up charges by the Romans. And the religious leaders would be standing there and they would pass by as he was being crucified and they say, they, would, they sneered at him, well, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the son of God. And what did he pray on the cross? Just before he breathed his last, we're told that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It would appear from a worldly perspective that his mission had failed. He was being crucified as a low-life criminal. Rejected, betrayed, deserted, alone, on the cross. And he would say that to his father. Nehemiah, remember me for what I have so faithfully done in the service of God. And Jesus was in that moment. And what looks like, where's God in this? You know, when we get back to points which feel like square one, we can be tempted to say, where's God? Why has he allowed this to happen? As if God has done something wrong. No, backsliding believers Maybe other people's compromise in the mix as well. We might be on the receiving end of other people's sin as well as having committed our own. That's in the mix. No, no, no. God has not done anything wrong. God has not been faithless. God has not deserted. God has not betrayed. God has not rejected. God is powerfully at work. Get to the point in Nehemiah 13. It's a real valley moment. It's a real low point, but it's pointing towards another high point. If you like, another mountaintop moment, albeit one where Jesus himself would be crucified for us. For him, what bleakness. Such a low point. But that therefore, like him, we might be raised and be seated with him in the highest place. God is not absent. God is not far off. God has not stopped working. God is always at work. The book of Nehemiah could never complete it. Nehemiah himself, the people of God, would never be able to say, look at what we've done. It's always pointing to someone else. Our lives should be pointing to someone else. We might not be able to say at the end of our lives, look at what I've achieved. It might just look like a nothing much significance happened. No, but God is at work. And so we are called to faithful trust 
in an almighty God who is always working his plans and purposes through for his people and indeed the whole of creation, the whole world. He is a God to give our lives to. He is a God to trust in completely. He is a God who's worth being passionate about, who's worth praying to, and he's worth taking steps of faith and being proactive in this life. It's not throwing the towel. Oh, nothing, nothing works. No, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Christ's labor was not in vain. Nehemiah's labor was not in vain. Therefore, Stand firm, don't lose your hope, give yourselves fully to the work of God, be that in the workplace, be that in your home life, be that in this church, be that in the community around us, be that with your neighbours, be that wherever, give yourself to the work of God, knowing that he is faithful. It registers with him and he is about a great work. He will be and always will be the hero of the story. Don't try to get in that place yourself and then get really despairing when you're not the hero. Just don't try and be the hero. Be faithful. Give yourselves to following God. Give yourselves to those tricky circumstances. Trust God on a Monday morning and believe that God remembers he is faithful and he's powerfully at work for his purposes and he will be forever our wonderful hero. Amen? Amen. We're going to worship God together.